Welcome to Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage, the show that gives you a chance to hang with today's top contemporary jazz artists. I'm your host, Carl Brown. Welcome to the show today, everybody. We have a real treat for you today. Today's guest is, in a word, a legend. If there were a Mount Rushmore of jazz musicians, he would absolutely have to be on it. He was discovered by Quincy Jones at the Notre Dame Music Festival in 1963. He recorded his first album in that same year, and some 60 albums later, continues to be at the top of his game. He and his music are known and loved worldwide. He has been nominated for 18 Grammys. He's won multiple Grammys and countless other awards. In addition to being a prolific creator of his own music, he's also the founding member of the jazz supergroup Foreplay. Please welcome to the show today, Mr. Bob James. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here to join you, Carl, and I'm happy to be still doing that stuff that you talk about. Thank you for using the word legend, although it always conjures up oldness <laughs> to me. Yeah, I hear you. But it's a much-deserved yeah. term for you, you know? Yeah, just, just, just say young legend. Okay, we'll do like that. that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll scratch that and make it young legend. That's all right. But I tell you, I mean, your music has been an integral part of the soundtrack of so many of our lives. Do you ever take time to just sit back and think about how many lives you've touched with your music? I guess I can't avoid thinking about it. And yes, yeah. I do, especially when I tour and even more, especially if I'm touring around the world, the meeting people from countries that are so far away and then discovering that they're listening to my music or that they heard some song from one of my recordings that I almost forgot about just reminds me of the amazing aspect of recorded music and yeah. that it takes on, takes on life of its own separate from my life. And yeah. I, I feel very, very fortunate to be part of that. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. It's funny. You talked about some songs that you have sometimes maybe forgotten about. I had that very experience with your music a couple of weeks ago. I was rotating some of your music and there's a couple of songs that were like, oh, yeah, I forgot that was a Bob James song, too. You know, and so there's such a such a huge body of work. And talk to us a little bit about the fact that you were discovered by Quincy Jones. What did how did that go down? Well, I'd like to actually to share a little anecdote with you that just came back to me because the name Quincy came up in a conversation that I was having. And suddenly I remembered that Quincy had given me a nickname. Okay. 60 years ago when I first met him at that Notre Dame festival. And I did not know at the time, but I learned later that it was a sort of signature for him. One of the ways that he was able to make you feel special if you were his friend. He always would give his friends a nickname. Cool. And he was amazingly able to remember. So the nickname that he used very recently when we were talking, I think, on the telephone, was he said, how you doing, beer bomb? <laughs> and I was just kind of shocked because at first, I don't think I would have remembered that nickname, uh -huh. even though uh, after I thought about it, I remembered the reason why he gave it to me. And it was the most obscure thing, Carl. I was just out of college at that uh -huh. time, and I was collaborating with a theater guy. We were working on trying to compose and develop a Broadway musical. 
And the musical was going to be based on this story or book called Zulika. Okay. That had been compo- uh, written by an English writer named Max Beerbaum. Oh, okay. And I, I, t- I was just telling Quincy about it. It didn't have anything to do with my jazz stuff. It was a completely different thing, a random conversation. But the name Beerbaum, I think, stuck in his head. But I don't, ah. I don't think, I don't think he knew about this British writer novelist at all. And I never ended up writing that musical. It was something that I was just wor- working on at the time, 1962. Okay, you know, sixty years ago. And but the way Quincy's mind works, and uh, I don't know whether he writes the stuff down or has anybody helping him with it, but because by now he must have thousands of friends, and if he gives them all obscure nicknames yeah. like mine, I don't see how he remembers it. Right, right, and, right. And, and I don't see the guy very often anymore. Yes, yes, we're friends, but he lives on the West Coast and. His life went on to other things, as did mine. And yeah, most yeah. of the opportunity that I had to actually perform with him or know him personally was a long, long time ago. And when I would get that kind of phone call and we'd say, hey, how you doing, Beer Bomb? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just uh-huh. crazy. It warmed <laughs> my heart. And even if he had written it down on a piece of paper or something, it was very, very impressive to me that it made me feel like we'd been friends for life. That's cool. That is so cool. You know, I recently had a conversation with Alexander Zanchik, and he was telling me about how you discovered him playing at a club in Detroit after one show. You and your daughter went to see him play, and then you invited him out on the road with you. And he was he was talking to me glowingly about that encounter with you and working with you. And it got me thinking, like, I can imagine that that Bob James has probably given a lot of people uh, their first big break. Who are some of the folks that that you've kind of brought along in the music business? Well, I can immediately mention Kirk Whalum because I really met Kirk almost exactly the same way that I met Alex. Okay. Kind of randomly, didn't know who he was. And in the case of Kirk, who was living in Houston, Texas, I was playing a concert at this theater there in Houston, and I arrived early at Uh the theater, and there was an opening act. And I kind of went toward my dressing room, and I could only hear a little bit of what was going on. Yeah. But I began to become aware that there was pretty exciting audience reaction happening. And so I thought, well, let me go out and check it out. Who Uh is it? And it was Kirk Whalum's band. And they were killing. I mean, they, they had the audience just going completely crazy, so much so that I panicked because I, there's no way that I could, <laughs> I could bring the audience back to that level for my show. And I'm supposed to be the headliner on the show. And Kirk had the audience just completely wrapped up. Yeah. And that was my first opportunity to hear him. And I, I remember that day feeling like, well, if you can't beat him, hire him. <laughs> and, and, and so I did. And uh, I had a, an album that I was working on at that time in New York. And I think it was within a week or two that I invited him to come out to New York and play on my album, which turned out to be the album 12. Okay. Yeah. And he, he not only played great on it, but he wrote one of the songs, uh, Ruby, Ruby, Ruby. Yeah. Which he composed for his wife. Fantastic song. And that was the beginning of a great friendship with him also that was just random. He was just so darn good that I, I had to figure out some kind of way of joining up with him. 
<laughs> well, you have been certainly pretty prolific in making your solo music, but uh, uh, like talking about your work with Kurt, you've had so many successful collaborations. How do you choose projects that you want to lend your talents to and people that you want to work with? Well, maybe it relates to the whole idea of jazz, which to me is so spur of the moment, mm-hmm. so improvised, so such a kind of a free concept from the very beginning. And when I first fell in love with the idea of this music, my favorite aspect was not totally planned. The best things are the things that happen randomly or immediately or spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So it holds true with the choosing the musicians too. I couldn't think of a formula or some plan that I would make to go out and choose. It just happens. And when you start to hear something, when you're playing together and you start to synchronize or find that groove that you're always looking for, it's not predictable. And at first that made me feel insecure because you never know when it's going to happen. But I finally reached the point where I started to love that idea. I started to love not knowing what's going to happen next. And then you find a new gig and then you play with somebody and and they say, this is sounding really great. We should collaborate. We should do an album. Uh And it it just happens on its own without planning it. That's when I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. It happened kind of like that with David Sanborn. That came to through the record company, a couple of executives, I think Bruce Lundball being one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. No, in the case of the David Sanborn, it was Tommy Lapuma. Okay. But they thought it would be a good idea for us to collaborate. And although I casually knew David, I hadn't really thought of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he had either. I yeah. think he, even when we first started talking about working together, he told me later that he was thinking of me more as an arranger okay. than he was as a pianist. And so he was interested in having me write some arrangements for him, but his thought was more, it's going to be a saxophone album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I had, I had to convince him that it might be good for it to be a duet, and yeah. that occasionally the, the ball would go back and forth between the sax and the piano. So that happened pretty spontaneously, too. And, and I'll also say that I love being an accompanist. Yeah, okay. In my role as a pianist, I I think I'm really good at support. Yeah. And I know how to make that lead person, whether it be a singer or whether it be trumpet player, whatever, I, I think I can find those right chords that give them a cushion or that inspire them. And I have felt that instinct throughout my life. I, I love that challenge. Yeah, good, 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 good. So you got a couple of you've always it seems like you always have irons in the fire and something new going on. A couple of pieces in, in that you've got are fairly recent. Um, feel like making live as well as 2080. Talk to us about those two pieces of work and the genesis of those two pieces of work. The, the feel like making live. The entire concept grew out of my record company, which is actually based in Hong Kong now. The company is called Evolution. I've really had a wonderful new friendship with them, and I love the way they've treated my work with quality. The packaging quality, the audio quality, that's very, very important to them. 
And they approached me with this idea because I'd made a conventional CD for them called Espresso. But these days, all record companies and business people are aware that video has become such an important part. And yes. If you're an instrumental artist, if you don't have video, you really limited the exposure. Mm-hmm. So he actually first approached me that he wanted me to make video recordings of about 30 songs. Okay. Uh, And he was willing to take me into a studio with really good equipment and to do it. And I said, 30 songs? No, you know, yeah, no way. That's going to be there forever. (laughs) A lot of preparation. So I was kind of confused as to what was on his mind, but only after getting involved in it and finally convincing him to shorten the, the music list to make it more like 12 or 13 songs was something that I felt like I could prepare properly. But I saw what he was trying to accomplish, having much bigger exposure on YouTube and all the various video channels, but our video feel like a live concert. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of gimmicky shots by the seashore or anything like that. It was just my trio playing in a studio, but with a great engineer, great equipment, and good lighting. But the essence of it was us playing a live concert. So we we re-recorded some of the songs from the Espresso album that I had just done. But we also went back into my older recordings from the 1970s, such as Feel Like Making Love and Nightcrawler and things like that. So he wanted a broad representation of my repertoire available on video. Great. That, that That was a basic concept. Okay, okay, okay. And then what about 2080? That's a that's a new a, a new piece of work that just released very recently. I included on my suggestion for us today partly because I love talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. A- after so many years of doing similar stuff in the contemporary jazz field, seems like when we start to talk about our new albums, it's repetitive. And we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love my new album, you know, <laughs> something like that. And then uh, you don't know what to say about it. But in the case of this crazy, unique project, which we in- called 2080, I had the experience of meeting a young guy who was the son of my personal trainer okay. here in Traverse City, Michigan, where I live. And my trainer had told me that her son was pretty good with wiring stuff, electronic stuff. And I was having some trouble with a piece of equipment that I couldn't figure out how to fix. And she said, well, maybe my son Sam can come over and help you out. So he did. And he fixed it very quickly. And I started talking with him and got to know a little bit about him and discovered that he was very much into the field of electronic music. Okay. And had done some DJing in the place where he went to college. And I learned that it was Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, same place that I had gone to college. Yeah. And suddenly these parallel things that were crazy started to unfold for both of us. We realized that our ages were exactly 60 years apart and that he was 20 years old and I was 80 years old when we met. And this idea of 2080 came into my head as a futuristic year. What will music sound like in the year 2080? And what will it sound like if it's made by a combination of a 20-year-old and an 80-year-old? And what what would that end up being? Yeah. And then I 
I learned more about the kind of experimental nature of what he's doing or was doing then at the University of Michigan. And I was reminded back to my youth being very involved in experimental electronic music at the University of Michigan, same place, but 60 years apart. So that got us thinking, maybe we should start to work on something together. And I learned that he uses some digital music computer software called Ableton, which is Uh a very popular software right now that I have been, I have been struggling with because I, I use different software and I'm trying as hard as I can, Carl, to keep up with these young uh-huh. kids, but it gets harder and harder. It sure uh, does. The, the sharper their minds are and the duller mine is. So, <laughs> so he was helping me with Ableton and just for fun, we just started experimenting with some sounds and making some loops and whatever. So that was as far as we planned to go. He, yeah. He's a very ambitious young kid. He's now off in Germany with his own record label. And uh, Oh, great. And he was in graduate school majoring in artificial intelligence. Just fascinating young man. Wow. So we made some sketches, I, and I made a couple of rough, rough mixes of what we were doing. And I have a friend over in Japan who I knew for many, many years, and this lady who was a former pro- uh, producer of the Tokyo Jazz Festival, but she had just started a new project of her own, starting her own independent record label. So she said, Bob, do you have any weird stuff that wouldn't fall into the normal music that you do? Because uh, I'm a small label and I'm I'm interested in something more experimental. Uh-huh. So I said, well, yeah, I, I just happen to have something. Uh-huh. So uh, I sent her over not only this stuff that I was doing with Sam, but I had been sketching some other things. And so I sent her quite a few demos. And she said, well, they're interesting, but the one I really like is that 2080 stuff. Uh-huh. Says, That's exactly what I'm looking for. And we were surprised, but all of a sudden we had this opportunity to make a record. And in Japan, where Sam had never gone, and so he was excited about that aspect of it. But we had total motivation and a little bit of a budget to complete a full CD. Awesome. And we did, and we delivered it, and that's what ended up being the album 2080, which is so different from my normal music that I almost feel like I have to hold hands with whoever's going to get ready to listen to it. <laughs> Make sure that they don't think that it's not me, that it's somebody else or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a uh, listen. Let's take a listen to one of the songs from that 2080 album. This and is... without further explanation, I'll, you, the listener can make up their own mind. About All right. It. This is Brew This, uh, Brew this Again and Again.
right, we just heard brew this again and again from Bob James off of his 2080 release. It's funny, I had my daughter who's 16 years old who wants to be a singer in the car with me a couple days ago, and we were listening to 2080, and she asked me about, you know, where this music was going. And I said to her, I said, well, it's Bob James, who I basically explained the story that she was playing because I had read it somewhere. And after she heard the story, she said, yeah, I get it. Maybe that is what music will sound like in 2080, you know? So it's certainly what you guys were going for is certainly resonating. Great. And I, I know that stuff like this it takes time to get out into the real world so many people can react, pro or con, whatever the reactions are. And I know that this music, just from the way we created it and from what our attitude was, it, it needs to be listened to in a different way from jazz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, there's, there's not that much in the way of what I would call a conventional groove yeah. anywhere, so you can't listen to it that way. And although I know it requires a lot of guts on my part to suggest yeah. that they listen to the whole album all the way through with headphones. Yeah. Because I really think that's the, it's the sequence of how the music develops and it's very sometimes repetitive, but it shifts in yeah. slowly from one mood to another. And sometimes you're not even aware of how it's shifting. So if I'm lucky enough, or I should say if Sam and I both are lucky enough that people will find a time when it's quiet, when yeah. they're not distracted by anything, and really concentrate for that 40 minutes or so and see if we take you on an adventure that's different from anything else yeah. that you might hear. I think you do. I can say as someone who has listened from beginning to end to 2080, it did, it did take me on an adventure. But, you know, I don't, you, you mentioned, you know, holding hands of your fans through that that release. You know, that's one of the things that I love about your music is that your music is so different from song to song to album to album. You know, there are some artists who, like, there are some artists, like, you can listen for five seconds of a song and you say, I know who that's, that is, right? And while there are certainly commonalities sometimes in some of your music, I can't, I can go from album to album to album to album and find so much that's so different in your work, like, how have you been able to do that and, you know, and still be so, still make music that has continued to be so relevant and so good across the years? Thank you for saying that. I do love the unknown aspect of new music mm -hmm. that I love to come into my studio with a blank sheet of music paper and no plan about what I'm going to do. Yeah. And to let it unfold. And I like to project that same kind of feeling with the listener of my music that that they're not just going to hear the same thing over and over again or that yeah okay sometimes it's nice to be comfortable and yes i still like playing the theme from taxi that i yeah. did over 50, 50 years ago i still like doing it because it's i i can feel that there's a comfort in the fans that have listened to it for a long time but overall I'm much more stimulated by the idea of creating something new that I don't have any idea whether it will be successful or not. I yeah. only know that I, that I try to stimulate myself. I try to yeah. do the best that I can. And sometimes I want to confront with dissonance and craziness. Yeah. But overall, I like to come back home too. And yeah. I 
Uh, I'm, I'm not an angry musician. I respect that kind of a, approach too. Yeah. That there are sometimes that make the artists that make very confrontational, very, they even want their audience to be angry. Yeah. I went through some of that in my youth. I thought about it a lot. And uh-huh. I'm more comfortable with being myself. And I, I know you can't fake that kind of anger. You have, yeah. If you live in it, if you believe it, and your music is going to come out that way, the audience will hear it. And that, that can be very exciting and, and meaningful. But even with 2080, where I'm going way out into a more sonic, dissonant place, I like the idea of taking my listeners into the unknown, mm-hmm. but I like them to have an emotional experience while they're out there. And I, I, even more, I like to bring them back home feeling like they had a good experience. Yeah, 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 that's cool. And, and Sam feels that way too. That's awesome, that's awesome. You mentioned the word anger, and that when you said you, you're not an angry musician, it brought up something that, I wasn't planning to ask you about this, but I'm going to ask you about this. Back right after George Floyd was murdered, you posted something on Facebook that said that was Black Lives Matter to me. And you went through a litany of just a long, long list of all of the people who were your friends, who have influenced you, that worked with you. And I have to tell you, when I saw that, I'm getting emotional talking about it now. Because that was, for me, so... It was an epic statement, but it came from such a, a place. I felt that it came totally from your heart. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how did that, like, what made you decide to do that and put that out there? Because that was, that, that could have been perceived by some as a brave thing to do. But it had a huge impact on me. Well, as you can imagine, Carl, it's, it's still hard to talk about it. Have you ever felt like you were hypnotized and you did something that you, wow, did I actually do that? Yeah. I can't, oh, yeah. I can't yeah. believe I did it. Yeah. But it just, it came out in a way that you, you weren't predicting it. But that period of time, those weeks were so heavy mm-hmm. for, for everybody. And no matter what they felt about it, they were heavy. Yeah. And yes, there's too much talk that goes on and we turn on the TV and there's going to be somebody else with their opinions and talking about it, talking about it. And you, you get tired of listening to that. But then you get down to yourself and then yeah. you think, well, how does that impact me and my life? And I kind of knew that I had lived a life in a sort of mixed race situation where sometimes me not being the black artist that I felt like I was a guest maybe, or I was considered that way. Mm-hmm. And yet I could say truthfully, almost never do we talk about it, mm-hmm. the details of mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. we, we let it out through our music. Either the music is going to work or not. And I know from the faces on the, my musician friends, whether I have, whether I'm on the team yeah, or not, yeah, whether, whether, yeah. whether I'm totally there. And one night after watching the news, and I don't remember anything about it other than I was thinking about my wife who had just passed away shortly before that. Sorry to hear that. And, and um, a best friend in college was a 
director who mm -hmm. went on to become a Broadway director. And I was channeling them. Yeah. I want to do something. I want to say something, but that's not my field. And I'm here by myself at my home and I don't yeah. have anybody to even hold this, a camera or anything, but I want to say something and I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, so this, this, where I felt like I got suddenly got hypnotized is that maybe if I start making a list mm -hmm. of all the African American people that influenced my life, where would that lead me? Yeah. And then something, maybe this, my theater friend that I was channeling, they weren't with me, but yeah. I was thinking about them. Maybe if you just put the, turn the camera on and be honest and just read off the names. These are the people. And I spent the night before the, with the list and tried to make sure that I didn't leave anybody out. It was almost impossible. And I will confide to you that yeah. there were one or two a week later that I thought, oh, no, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> I yeah. forgot. So it was sort of inevitable, and then it was too late. But for the most part, going way back to my college days, the first time I actually played music with an African-American musician and began to feel the difference, but began to feel, why am I liking it? Why yeah. am I, why, why do I feel this? And can I do it? Do I belong? Yeah. And yeah. the early people, I remember Omar Clay, uh, I, I played a lot with in college, drummer. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he had a feeling about the way he played the drums that I couldn't quite understand it, but it was, the, if I had to think back on it, when did I first become aware about swing? Mm -hmm. And could I swing? Could, could yeah. when I played, would it lock up? Would, it, would the groove happen? And I felt it with him. We became really close friends. And I ended up getting a job some years later with Sarah Vaughn as her yeah. pianist. And that in itself was a little bit questionable in the in the jazz community as to what's this white guy doing uh -huh. sitting there playing for Sarah Vaughn. Uh, but uh, I was able to convince Sarah to hire Omar to be the drummer, who okay. I already knew. And Sarah swings so hard when yeah. she sings, and she's so moody that all you have to do is play a little bit with an artist of that caliber to know whether you're making it or not. Okay. And if you're, okay. If you're not making it, you're dead meat. You know, yeah, you yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might as well go home. So I lived that process. Yeah. And it, I still believe to this day that the bulk or the the meat, the the most organic, deepest aspects of the jazz art come out of the black community, come yeah. out of black history. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there was a reason for me to panic about it. Yeah. Nor, yeah. Or, nor do I ever want to take more credit than I deserve. I, I know that I have had a wonderful life joining up and whether it's as a guest or whether it's just as loving being a part of it. Yeah. By the time I spoke my words about Black Lives Matter, I'd already lived my life. Yeah. I'm, I'm way, way down the line and it was time for me to, Thank the people. Yeah. So I thank yeah. thanked everybody I could think of. Yeah. And and I think I can say really emotionally in a positive way, Carl, that 
I have not received one bad comment back. Yeah, I, I for the could most have... for the most part, all of my friends that that heard and realized that I had mentioned their names thanked me in a different way. We were suddenly able to talk in a different yeah. way than we normally yeah. do, I and bet. face face up to. You know, let's t talk about it. Let's, yeah. What, yeah. What does that What does that mean to me, Bob James? Why do Black Lives Matter? Yeah. Well, it's really basic to me. This is my whole life. Yeah. That, yeah. that I I've lived in an art form that was created by Black musicians that represents the culture. Yeah. That yeah. that wasn't my culture. I came yeah. from a small town in Missouri. That so. I don't understand even today talking to you why I'm good at it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think I, I think I am good. I'm good you at it. You are good at so, it. Trust me. Okay, so uh, I, I accept it. I accept that the Lord sent it down to me some kind of way. And I have to say, it was it was it was thoroughly authentic and moving for me. Not knowing you personally, even it was thoroughly authentic and moving for me. When I look, watched it. A week later, you know, after I did it that day, I literally couldn't believe it was me. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I, I almost kind of didn't remember how it happened. I was in this, I, I don't know, hypnotized dream, something or other. If I had had to repeat it, I'm not sure I could have. It was one time, yeah, uh, courage, yeah, to talk. What what right do I have to talk about something that important? And did I have anything to say? And the only thing that I could think of to say was just to tell my own story. Yep. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. So what's it like for you when you're on stage and you're looking at an audience enjoying your music? Like, does that still, does that still move you to this day? Or what's that like? It's awesome. Yeah. Last weekend, I played a concert in Norfolk, Virginia. And I wasn't feeling very good. Okay. The day before and then the day of... I had a little bit of concern, ooh, am I going to have to cancel the concert? Okay. And by the time it got to be about a half an hour before, I was thinking, i got to pull myself together because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. we we got a really nice audience out there, and Jay Lang, this promoter that I've gotten to know over the years, had prepared really well. So anyway, I got on the stage, and for 90 minutes, I felt so great. Wow. I didn't feel any physical weirdness at all. The adrenaline, the, I love doing it. I love this band that I'm playing with. Yeah. And felt great. The audience was smiling and they were responding. And for, for that period of time, it's like a life of its own. And I was kind of sick at the end of the evening okay. after the concert the next day. And for the last two or three days, I'm still pulling myself back together again. Okay. And I thought, gee, the only time I felt good in the last week was when I was on the stage performing. Huh. I still feel it's the highlight of my life, the fact that I can still do it. That rush of adrenaline where you go out on the stage wanting to give that audience the best possible time. Yeah. And want to earn your the fact that your name was on the bill and they bought a ticket and they came to see you. I want to earn it. Yeah, that's cool. And have them leaving wanting me to come back again. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, we're going to have you at our first Coast Jazz Festival in Milwaukee on, in August, August, August 26th. But do you remember the last time you played in Milwaukee? Only vaguely. Yeah. There was something that came into my mind about 
Chris Walker, who I played with quite a bit, and okay. I think he was in my band when I played in Milwaukee. I'm, I'm going to have to ask him about it. Yeah. Because he co-wrote one of the foreplay songs with me, and I think we were working on it there. That's what I remember about Milwaukee. For okay. Some crazy, crazy reason. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So, Bob, we have this segment that we do on each show. It's called Bout It or Doubt It. So if you're about it, it's something that you like. If you doubt it, it's something that you're not quite feeling. Can we can we get you to play about it or doubt it with us today? Well, sure. All right, sure. let's do it. I started this body body. If you body, get him up. I mean you body body. I mean you body I doubt it. All right, Bob. So we're gonna spin the wheel and get you a category. Then we're gonna ask you a couple of about it or doubt it questions. Okay. Okay. All right, Bob, your your category today is travel and leisure. Hmm. Bout it or doubt it, the Caribbean. Doubt it. Doubt it. Okay. Okay. Not a sand and surf vacation kind of guy or Well, I don't want to say bad things about the Caribbean. I've had some wonderful times there, and I played a lot of concerts down there, too. Yeah. But what what made me say doubt it was that uh, I've traveled to so many places that I don't think that way about vacation. My vacation to me is at home, so I I know the people that want to go to the Caribbean to escape. Yeah. uh, I, I don't feel that way. Yeah, okay, okay. So vacation for you, you said, did you say vacation for you is at home when you're getting off the road and... Yeah, I live on a nice lake, and I can have some peace and quiet and walk around my garden. That's my vacation. That's cool. But, That's cool. But I'm, my concert might be in Indonesia or someplace. Right. Where I, or I, I was in Mexico earlier this year. I just came back from Lithuania. Okay. So I get plenty of chances to travel and leisure. Yeah, yeah. So when you're out, when you're out touring and you're at, at these different locations, do you make time over the years? Have you made time to just enjoy where you are and not make it all about the show? Try to. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard for doing one-nighters because if it's very expensive to do it that way. If you stay yeah. for two or three days, you got to pay for your hotels and uh, per diems for the band members because so you're, you're not I'm rarely traveling by myself. So right. if you're traveling with a group and uh, you try to book as many nights as you can. So yeah. our... Our leisure time might be in the morning to take a walk on the beach or early afternoon before we have to go to sound check. But I, I do try to celebrate whatever place I'm in. At yeah. least have some chance to eat local food Good. and get to know the people a little bit, something like that. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, we got one more about it or doubt it question for you, Bob. Private planes, about it or doubt it? Ooh, well, I don't doubt it. I wish I could be more about it. <laughs> The, I've only had a very, very few. I could count probably the times on one hand, the fingers of one hand, how many times I've been able to do the private plane experience. Uh-huh. And I read about it. And the last time I did it was probably before the pandemic. But even at that time, I mean, yeah, but before the all the craziness with security. Yeah. I remember, I remember being able to drive my car right out to the actual plane and I got mm-hmm. somebody I get out of the car and I get on the plane and I go uh, yeah without going through anything without going into uh, any kind of security that was 
extremely convenient and made me envy anybody who's in a position to be able to do that because the the overall experience of travel yeah. for us is not an easy thing. Yeah. Delays yeah. and just every day just going through that kind of nightmare of of going through airports is yeah. uh, is hard. Yeah. So yeah. private plane I doubt it that I'll ever have one. Uh-huh. <laughs> if I could, I'd be better. There you go. There you go. All right. I understand that completely. Well, let's get into some more music. Talk to us about the song. For those who don't know, we ask the artists to submit songs that they want to feature in the show. And one of the songs you f- submitted was a song you're featured on called Moving Forward. Tell us about that song, Bob. This song I had to choose from our talk together today because... It's a very, very emotional thing for me that's going on right now. I met a guy by accident, not by accident, but through the internet who had submitted a demo to me unsolicited about four years ago. And he lived in the Ukraine in Mm -hmm. the city of Kiev. And usually when an unsolicited unsolicited demo comes my way, I rarely have time or interest in listening to it. But for whatever reason, I played this demo track, and I loved it. It was mm. a little bit quirky, but it was kind of in the smooth jazz area, but it had something special about it that I really, really liked and responded to. And there was a section of about eight bars in the middle of it that he had purposefully left blank for me to fill in with a little solo if he felt like he was lucky mm. enough that he could get me to do it. So without even asking for a fee or anything like that, I just played something on it and sent it back to him. That's to cool. Ukraine. And he was shocked that I had done it. He liked my solo, and it ended up being released on his record at that okay. time. Uh, and he had some distribution in the U.S. also, but mostly he, he's quite well known in the the Middle East or the where he lives in Ukraine. So we became friends, and which included me going over to Kiev and play a concert three years ago before the pandemic. Wow! And I played with his band in this big theater. He realized how famous he was over there. There was a big string orchestra that huh. playing and everything, and we had a wonderful time. And my manager was able to take his band. To London because I, I had a gig in London okay. right at, right after that so I I used them as my band rather than bringing a band over to the U.S. Yeah, and they they got a trip they'd never been to London before so they were super excited about that and even more friends after that so it was a solid friendship and I completely loved his talent uh, there was something about it there are lots of saxophone players out there but I felt something very different with him. So time marched on, and this year, in February, I learned that he was coming over to the U.S. So he figured out a way to get up here where I live in Michigan to to come to my home. And he stayed in my house for a couple of days, and we recorded some stuff together, just the two of us. And at the end of it, I took him to the airport, said goodbye, and that turned out to be the day of the invasion oh, wow. of Russia to the Ukraine. Wow. So he, at that time, was married with a young two-year-old daughter, and his wife and daughter were in Kiev at that time. So it was very, very traumatic for them yes. to get out. Yeah. 
And through a bunch of friends, they finally were able to escape and make the trip through Poland to Lithuania. Okay. And my friend, Andre, also ended up in Lithuania, where they have taken refuge for the last five months since the invasion. And people of Lithuania have treated them so beautifully. It's amazing the way some of these other countries have come to the aid of the actual people who have had to escape out of their country because of the war. So he arranged to have a concert in Lithuania, invited me to come over, and I played a concert two weeks ago uh, with him in Lithuania. And we played this song, Moving Forward, and that is also the song that he sent me the original demo of it four years ago, uh, how we, we, we came to meet. And I now consider him one of my very dearest friends and favorite musicians, and I want to support him and all of his Ukrainian people while they're going through this terrible, traumatic time. Well, let's take a listen. This is uh, Andre Schmoot, is it? Schmoot. And this is Andre Schmoot with Bob James. The song is Moving Forward.
right, you just heard moving forward Andre Schmute featuring Bob James. So, Bob, and I got to ask you a little bit about this part of your career, too. So in 1990, while you were working on Grand Piano Canyon with Harvey Mason, you also started to work with Nathan East and Lee Rittenauer, and that, I understand, was the genesis of the Supergroup Foreplay. Yes, it started out being me looking for a rhythm section for my project, and I, at that time, was doing a lot of work with Harvey, very often inviting him to come out to New York, which that's primarily where I was doing my recordings. Mm -hmm. But this time I decided it might make more sense to go out to Los Angeles because I had also uh, traded a little bit with Lee Rittenauer guesting on one of his albums, and I was going to ask him for reciprocal so that he could guest on my album. And since both Harvey and Lee lived in Los Angeles, it made sense for me to go out there. Yeah. But I didn't really know who to use on bass. Okay. And so I asked Harvey separately, and I asked Lee separately who what the recommendation would be, and both of them came back. Nathan East was who uh. they both recommended. So that was good enough recommendation from me, and I'd never met him before, but that was my first opportunity on that uh, Grand Piano Canyon album to... Uh, and, and when the four of us were in the studio, it just felt unique. It felt different. Yeah. It felt like something locked in that was really special. And I had a job as an A&R executive with Warner Brothers at that time, and I was able to okay. pre present this idea of starting up a new group to the record label to see if they would give us a budget. To, to start it up. And yeah. they said, yes, yes. And that was enough impetus to, to get us to go in and start seeing what we could come up with. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, well, oh my gosh, you, you guys came up with quite a bit. So, you know, yeah. what, what was that like, you know, going from, you know, being a solo artist to now being, you know, a, a member of a group? Well, I, I remember being very curious about that because all of us had been aware of the various groups in both rock and jazz, whatever, that have a group identity. And yeah. I was curious of what made that the group identity separate from the individual artists. I remember us talking uh, about the Modern Jazz Quartet as an example of a quartet that had a sound that was definitely heavily influenced by Milt Jackson and John Lewis, but overall sound that became modern jazz quartet was a little bit separate from either one of those guys, but it was a combination of all of them. Yeah. So we used that as a kind of reference. And I remember us being very skeptical that we would end up having our own sound Yeah. because we already had separate identities and whatever. And I, I guess it was a gradual thing where we began to be aware that there was a what everybody could recognize as a foreplay sound. Yeah, yeah. So rumor rumor has it that there's a possible foreplay reboot in the future, that there's been a little work with Jonathan Butler in studio on guitar. In guitar, on guitar. Am I, uh, is there a big reveal or anything we can get today, Bob? <laughs> well, you've done good homework. <laughs> it's still in the rumor stage for a variety of reasons uh, what i feel is the most complicated and, and making me a little pessimistic about it is the 
difficulty of really starting up because we all know that the only way that that can really work is to commit. Yeah. And yeah. remembering back of what it took to do a whole project and plan a tour and all of these yep. things that takes you two years out of your life. Yeah. Yeah. One way, yeah. One way or the other. I will say that we love Jonathan Butler and he was one of the first people we wanted to talk about. And I, we still want any opportunity to play and do, do stuff with him. But there's another factor in all of this that hit us so hard when Chuck Loeb passed away. Yeah. And he, he had been become so important to the group and the, our whole method in the studio, the, the direction that we took was always stimulating with him, always yeah. challenging on so many different levels. After that happened, we were basically feeling we've had a great run and it was wonderful having this group. Yeah, yeah. And now let's go on with the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thought. But we have not been able to escape so many people saying that they want something to return. Yeah. And we, and I'm, const I'm, not, I'm not the only one that's constantly asked that question like you did. Right. What's happening? You know, is it going to happen or not? Yeah. And I do not want to be the person to say, no, yeah. it's not going to happen. Even though I'm the oldest guy, so I have maybe the most uh, limited opportunity to schedule it and actually try to make it happen. Mm -hmm. The only thing I can say at this point is that we talk about it all the time. Yeah. There's a lot of theories going on. Best way, do we make a commitment with a record company so we can get a good budget to start up? Mm -hmm. I don't have any better answer than that at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I, for one, and like a lot of people, am, would, would love to see that happen. I I know Sonny, your manager, <laughs> I've asked Sonny probably 20 times. So, Sonny, what's going uh -huh. on? Like, I, I keep thinking about our upcoming jazz festival, right? I was like, well, Sonny, you got to let me know because if they do, I want to make sure we can get them in Milwaukee. So, you know, <laughs> so. Well, we love that there, you would have that kind of enthusiasm about it. And I know that I do. And I feel kind of guilty or, or frustrated when I don't also feel that I can give a, a real positive answer to where we are at this time. Just given the pros are so clear. We, I yeah, know we have a yeah. fan base. I know we could tour successfully. And there, there are people out there like Jonathan who are so special that, yes, the sound would be totally different from what it was with either of the other three guitarists. Yeah. Jonathan is so specific in his style. But all the other three guitarists had different and unique styles too. So we've, we've been through that before. Yeah. Uh, one, one idea that I would share a little bit with you, but don't quote me on it. Sure. Is, is that uh, an idea that we've had is an album that would just be the three of us, Nathan Harvey and me, with different fourth. Oh, members. yeah. Because we also went out and actually did some concerts with Kirk Whalem, and they were quite yeah. successful. Kirk is very adaptable. It's not the guitar sound, obviously. It's just changing the sound to saxophone. Yeah. But, but if we chose carefully, and then maybe one of the one of them was a singer or yeah. whatever else. And that Jonathan would be and cool. Kirk and whatever. But it would be fun, and it would be very, very fun in the yeah. studio creatively. The touring aspect of it then becomes, whoops, you know, how, how do you, uh, you know, have 10 yeah. different guests on stage? Yeah. Uh, 
uh, obviously impossible. Maybe you have to do 10 different tours. Yeah, you, yeah. One tour, you go out with Kirk, and one tour, you go out with Jonathan. Yeah. I don't know. The, the, the refinements of that idea have not been uh, figured out. Yeah, yeah. But, but I know that Nathan, Harvey, and I are good rhythm section. Yeah, clearly. We, we could make a bunch of different artists sound good. I know uh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, I, I look forward to whatever iteration there's going to be. I'll tell you a little bit of a story. I Milwaukee just recently started a smooth jazz radio station, and hmm. I started as on-air talent on that smooth jazz radio station recently, and I had it all planned out. The very first song that I was going to play was Chant. Okay. Hmm. Got hmm. there, got to the station my very first day. It wasn't in the library, and immediately I went to the guy who owns the oh, station. No. I was like, Hey man, we gotta let me help you work on this library. Like, there's songs that should be in there that aren't there, and I was just heartbroken because I had it all planned in my mind. My very first song was going to be Chant. So, oh, well, I'm extremely flattered, but frustrated that it wasn't in the library. It's in there now, but yeah, it didn't yeah. help me the first day. <laughs> it's in there now. Yeah. So it has it has such a sentimental memory for me. It was on our second album. Okay. And I had gotten to know Nathan by that time, and he was so shy about his singing. Uh-huh. But I could kind of sense that, that he could do it. And whenever he would play solo, a lot of his solos that were sometimes after effects for him, and his solos would come toward the end of a tune, and he loved scatting. Okay. With his bass, and he'd play the bass and scat at the same time. And suddenly he was like a different musician. When huh. he, he was in his own world, and free, no pressure, not thinking about it. But the way he scatted with his bass it's, was so vocal, so funky, so yeah. natural, and so uniquely him that I started thinking about how could I encourage him to do more of it and we were in Japan on tour. We were in the city of Osaka, and I had gotten them, them to rent me a keyboard so I could have it in my room to compose. And I stayed up all night one night trying to come up with some kind of a riff uh -huh. that, that he could sing. There, was, there wasn't words, but that I, I could feature that sound that I loved when yeah. he did solos. So... The next morning, I invited him to come down to my room, and we started just, I had this, this simple chord progression thing going, and we just kept playing it over and over and over again, and he eventually got comfortable with it, and we ended up expanding it out into that song. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of my all-time favorites, and a song that I, I play lots and lots and lots. So what advice, Bob, would you give your 13-year-old self about life? Mm, 13? Yeah. Biggest problem with that is the 13-year-olds rarely ever would want to listen to an old person <laughs> telling them how to live their life. <laughs> so you start right off by having to be aware that they're probably not going to listen to it anyway. So I'll, I'll tell you an answer that I gave uh -huh. pretty much based upon that idea is the advice would be, don't go into the music business. Huh. Huh. Period. Okay. And I, and I say it no matter how talented you are. And for this other reason of, well, if, if that person is stubborn enough and talented enough 
they're not going to listen to my advice anyway. They're yeah. prove me wrong. Yeah. And so my advice serves to tell the old guy to shut up. Or uh-huh. whatever. <laughs> if, if they're not talented, they should listen to my advice. Yeah. So, so my advice works either way. Just yeah. don't go – because, first of all, I don't like giving advice anyway. That's yeah. a bit pretentious, and I don't have easy answers to anything. But this advice of don't do it reveals the person that you're giving the advice to. It reveals if they're tough enough, yeah. uh, crazy enough, yeah. talented yeah. enough, they're not going to listen to you anyway. They're, yeah. they're going to do it. And, and you're not going to talk them out of it. Yeah. And if they're not, then they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, let's listen to one more of the songs that you wanted to feature today. And you wanted to feature a Chet Baker tune, Autumn Leaves. Tell us about that tune and what that tune means to you. I thought it would be nice to just share memories of what my life was like back in the CTI era when Creed Taylor was hiring me to either arrange or play on so many different albums. And this one particular album, I not only had the opportunity to work, one of the only times I ever had the opportunity to work with Chet Baker, but I also had a chance to work with Paul Desmond, uh, who I, I was such a big fan of the Dave Brubeck Quartet in my college days. So I wasn't even that much aware at the time of how significant it would be to look back and realize that I'm playing in this Rudy Van Gelder famous studio with great, great audio, with a great producer, and the band is Ron Carter, Steve Gadd, mm. Paul Desmond, Chet Baker, and me. Wow. And I'm there right in the middle of it. So there we were, and I was, in my mind, trying to keep up with level that was in the studio that day and we recorded this song autumn leaves standard song i played it a hundred times with a whole bunch of different artists but don sebesky had who was one of the chief arrangers with cti records at that time uh had prepared a very sketchy but cool arrangement that that just gave us a very simple framework mm-hmm. and we just played some straight ahead swinging jazz and I I tried to comp for Chet Baker and Paul Desmond for both their solos and then I had a chance to play my own solo on electric piano and I could play knowing that Ron Carter and Steve Gadd were killing it with rhythm section and my job was just to float on top of it yeah and it was really great memory which then years later I somebody told me that I should watch this video on YouTube, uh-huh. and there was a black and white video of that recording session huh. of all of us playing, and it's on this video. And so I started watching it, and it kind of seemed right, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. There wasn't any video at that recording session. Yeah. Uh, there were no video cameras in those days recording all of it. And then I looked closer, and... Chet Baker's fingers weren't quite matching up to what he played, nor were my, my fingers were not matching up. And I started to recognize the outfit that I was wearing. And I began to realize that the video of me was from a Queen Mary Jazz Festival concert, totally different, having ah. nothing to, having nothing to do with autumn leaves, nothing to do with any of it. 
And then I studied studied it even more closely, and and this editor, I think he was Italian, but this editor had researched and come up with these clips of all of us from different places, and he very meticulously made sure that you don't see us as a group. You don't see us in the same room uh-huh. at the same time. They were all individual clips of Chet starting out, just him playing the first part or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But even I, at first, almost believed it until huh. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There wasn't any video there. This, is, this thing is fake. So I suggest to anybody to uh, watch it. It's still up yeah. there on YouTube. And if you see the black and white video of uh, Chet Baker, Autumn Leaves, uh, you can pretend that we were there all uh, <laughs> on that video, but it's, it's fake. Well, let's take a listen. This is Autumn Leaves.
you just heard Autumn Leaves, Chet Baker featuring Bob James. So, Bob, is there something your fans would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, probably a lot. Yeah. Um, probably best that I don't reveal most of those okay, things. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't want them to know. <laughs> well, give us one basic thing they might be surprised to learn about you. Well, other than enjoying the opportunity to get some exposure for the 2080 album, which definitely I think a lot of fans are going to hear not knowing that aspect about me, this whole aspect of age is something that I didn't expect to even live this long. Uh -huh. So now here I am. Here uh -huh. I am in my eighth decade. I don't feel that age. I feel very lucky that I'm, I've kept my health. Yeah. I work yeah. out. I try to eat right minimal alcohol yeah all the things that i'm hoping to hang around for a long time and maybe that's sort of something that my listeners may not be completely aware of yeah is that i'm not going away that's all right I, that's I, a good I plan thing. to hang out for another at least 10 years or more and we are all happy to hear that we are all happy to hear that so a couple final questions for you bob you are having a dinner party. You can invite any three people living deceased that you want to invite. Who's coming to your dinner party and what's on the menu? Well, I so, it just so happens I'm doing a renovation to my home. Okay. And I'm creating a dining table that is has art. I'm actually working with my architect who also likes to do visual art. Oh, cool. And we are creating a kind of eclectic art that's going to be on this table. Yeah. And we start the idea of it started off with what what if you could invite Picasso to your dinner ah, or Gustav yes. Klimt or David Hockney or yeah. somebody like that or what would that be like and what if they saw themselves on the table itself? Mm -hmm. So we, we took different sections of the table and created some art that simulated those styles. But then we also reached the point where I decided to do a, two different portraits, uh, one of Bach uh -huh. and the other of Stravinsky. Okay. Who were my two biggest influences as composers, both deceased, obviously. Yes. They are now represented on this table. Wow. And I've already, cool. I've already dreamed about what that might be like. Yeah. So if I only get three, I would probably, of the people that I just talked about, yeah. I, I would probably invite Bach and Stravinsky and then one of the artists. That's uh, fantastic. Let's just say... Um, Rembrandt. All right. All right. <laughs> so, and, so, and what what would you serve at that dinner party? Well, I would I would ask somebody else to be the chef and yeah. serve that because I'm not a good chef. Gotcha. But I would love to serve them at the end of the dinner an espresso. There you go. Espresso is my favorite thing, and I've got some great cups. All right. I even have a cup that has Bach on the <laughs> his image. Okay. Um, so I could. I could I could have a Bach espresso cup or That's Stravinsky cool. espresso cup, so that that'll be the extent of my my chef duties. That's awesome. That is awesome. And then, can you think about what your three? Can you peg three favorite albums of all time? Definitely, I can peg one, and Bach comes back into the picture with that one too because an album that has stayed with me more than any other is the uh, it's actually a collection of two or three cds 
by Glenn Gould, the pianist, and uh, Jamie Laredo, the violinist, playing violin and piano sonatas of Bach. Mm. And there were six, six of them. And I probably listened to that recording 10,000 times. Wow. I don't know. Wow. I don't know. I lost track of it. So that would definitely be one. How many do I get? Three. I get three. We'll get. We'll do three. Well, I'm, I don't want to be egotistical, so I'm not going to include any of my own things. Oh, but you can. Even, <laughs> even though I tend to listen to my own stuff more and more these days. That's a good it thing. It gives me, gives me a kind of comfort and a kind of memory. And since we talked about Grand Piano Canyon, let me just pop that in there. Yeah. It, it remains a favorite for all kinds of reasons. It was a really good time in my life. Yes, great memory. And let me also put flesh and blood in there because All right. that's my daughter Hillary and I made yeah. an album together. Yeah. Very, very powerful experience for my family and me. And that's a bit of a selfish choice, but they're your choices though. That's great. That'll do it for today. That's great. That's great. Well, Bob, I got to tell you, it has been an absolute pleasure being able to spend a little time with you and get to know you and chop it up with you a little bit. We are very much looking forward to seeing you in Milwaukee and at the Fresh Coast Jazz Festival, and we wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you, and no matter what I'm feeling like on that day, I know when I hit the stage, the adrenaline will kick in, and I can't wait to perform for my friends in Milwaukee. Yeah, and we, we well, we got a really good, we, we're going to make sure that you have some good espresso there, too. At Fantastic. the theater, at the theater, they got a, a barista in the green great. room. So we're going to make sure you're well taken care of. So we know it's going to be a great show. Fantastic, Carlos. I, I love talking with you today. All right. Thank you, Bob. All right, everybody. Get your tickets now for the 2022 Fresh Coast Jazz Festival, August 26th and 27th at the Paps Theater in Milwaukee, featuring today's show's guests, Bob James, Najee, Alex Bunyo, Adam Hawley, Gabrielle Anders, Vandell Andrew, and more. Tickets are on sale now at FreshCoastJazz.com. That's our show for this week. Be sure to check out our website, FreshCoastJazz.com, to sign up for our email list so you can stay up on what's going on with contemporary jazz. We'll see you next time on Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage. Backstage.